Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where uh, a pair of pastor scholars study the scripture using a passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is uh, St. Ambrose. Uh, St. Ambrose, of course, uh, died uh, over 1,500 years ago, uh, so we won't be hearing his voice directly, but I have some readings from him uh, that will appear in our second segment. Uh, I've been wanting for a while, and I thought the Psalms and in the summer, both summer and Psalms, would be a good occasion to experiment with this. I've been wanting a while to experiment with doing an episode just on my own, just to sort of experiment with the format a little bit and see if there might be some, I don't know, different things that emerge drawing on uh, some classic texts and taking a slightly more contemplative approach. I love the dynamism of dialogue. That will continue to be the primary format of the show, but I've been wanting to experiment with this for a while. So this was a good week to do that for various uh, logistical and strategic reasons. So yeah, so our guest this week is uh, St. Ambrose, or from another point of view, I suppose our guest this week is is yours truly, John Trey. So uh, if you're enjoying the show today, especially if you know, you're like, oh, this is different and weird. Maybe there's someone that would enjoy this that wouldn't normally like uh, the show or would like it, but maybe needs a, a different way in. So if you're joining the show today, just click the share button on your podcast player app of choice. Every app has them. You just press share and you can shoot a text or an email to someone or post on social media, get the word out somehow, post it in a group that you're a part of. Uh, word of mouth is the main way the show gets around. So please pass it along if you're enjoying it today or think someone else might particularly enjoy the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. Uh, and there you can become one of our patron saints for just a couple bucks a month. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation about Psalm 85 with St. Ambrose. All right, so today we're looking at Psalm 85. Psalm 85. I'm going to read this uh, the first time through. Uh, using the NRSV, Psalm 85, starting with the NRSV. Lord, you were favorable to your land, and you restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sin. You withdrew all that your wrath. You returned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. He will speak peace to his people, to his faithful, to those who turn to him in their hearts. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness 
and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and will make a path for his steps. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, you are our God. You are the God of all creation. You are the God of the covenant, the covenant you made with your people, the covenant you included us into, even though we were not a people. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to be steadfast in your love, that you would be faithful to your covenant, bringing righteousness and justice and peace to all those whom you love, which we believe in the gospel to be all, though many, in fact, all of us fall short of the righteousness and faithfulness expected of us in return. And so some of us from time to time, if not often, have to feel the brunt of you being faithful to your covenant as restoring justice means correcting injustice. And so, Lord, where we have fallen short, where we have failed, where we have committed injustice, Lord, correct us, uh, rebuke us, transform us, make us into agents of your justice. Where we've suffered injustice, Lord, save us, help us, restore us, O Lord. And now as we reflect on this passage, Lord, grant us the grace uh, to see, to hear, to speak, and to show uh, the truth of your word. We ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God. In his name we pray. Amen. So, Psalm 85, let's begin with some observations. This would be considered a lament psalm of a kind. Clearly, uh, the people are in trouble, but unlike some laments that are straining to find even a flicker of hope, this is a lament filled with hope. Uh, The hope drips from it, confident, almost prophetic uh, sense of what is to come the gift and salvation and rescue that the Lord provides. It's 13 verses in most English translations. And starting around verse 8 all the way to 13, so almost half of the passage, takes on a somewhat uh, almost prophetic tone uh, filled with hope of what is to come. Of course, it's uh, ambiguous as it is in most languages, the future tense could mean this is just about to happen or could be a long way off or perhaps a bit of both. Of course, in the beauty of poetry, that being unspecified means that you can take it either way. So this could be a confident uh, sense that God will uh, save and restore and bring righteousness and peace just around the corner. Or it could be very well a uh, a very distant hope that surely because of God's character, these things will occur, though how soon or how long we'll have to wait could be unknown. So it opens, though, with 
a sort of narrative of the place of lament, this kind of looking back to the way God has dealt with us in verses one through three. So one through three, look back. If eight through 13, look forward, I suppose, strictly speaking, 10 through 13, look forward and eight and nine kind of look up as it sort of makes assertions about the character of God. But there's a number of uh, future tense verbs that, that signal a future movement in verse eight. So eight through 13, point to the future. One through three, look back, not at the cause of the lament, but the rationale for why it makes sense to direct our lament, our struggle, our need uh, toward God, um, because it declares God as someone who has restored and forgiven and pardoned and turned from anger in the past. It's a classic move in the Psalms of what uh, my teacher, Steve Lennox, would call a covenant confidence. There's just a confidence in the covenant here by looking back to say, God, this is this is the kind of God you are. This is what you have done in the past. This is what you've committed to do and be. Um, so, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You've restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sins. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your anger, your hot anger. So this is the, the basis of hope is actually in memory, the memory that this is the sort of things that God has done before. And in fact, at just first glance, you might not catch the lament character of the psalm because, again, you might think, oh, okay, this is going to be one of those narrative psalms of remembering how God has done this. And yet it immediately turns in the core of the psalm, the heart of the psalm, in verse 4 through 7. So 4 through 7 is the petition, is this moment of of begging God, uh, begging God, asking God to restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. And then in the form of questions, will you be angry with us forever? There's hope in there, surely not. And yet there's pain because it sure seems like the anger persists and persists a long time. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Again, a flicker of hope, surely not. Again, this could be one of those darker laments like we find in chapter 88, for instance, only a few chapters after this, that just kind of ends with these kinds of questions, leaves it unanswered. Uh, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Again, there's that covenant confidence slipping in that deal making that says, God, you do this and we uh, will rejoice in you. Surely you want to do this. And then returning again to the petition in verse seven, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. In the, uh, in the King James, how's that go? I've got that out. Oh, turned a page on accident. The old King James, that's a famous line that's used in the, the Book of Common Prayer. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I use that almost every day in my own just use of, of a prayer book that has that little call and response in it. It's one of the, the classic, uh, it's kind of made its way into um, some churches and their liturgies and their prayers. Show us your mercy, O Lord, your uh, steadfast love, your faithfulness, your chesed, your abiding binding, that your binding of yourself to us, your word of commitment, your promise to us to be with us. Demonstrate that. Show us that. Hesed, manifest that. Live in accordance with that. 
live up to the word that you've committed as you've bound yourself to us in perpetuity. And grant us your salvation, your rescue. Because chesed, under the conditions of separation of an apparent failure in the covenant, requires then salvation, restoration, a bringing back a rescue from that which threatens that faithfulness. So here we have in pretty straightforward, simple, and yet profound way, we have a lament with all of its portions, an appeal to memory in the past, verses 1 through 3, a begging for help and mercy, verses 4 through 7, and then a turn, a transition in verse 8 through 9 that directs our attention to the future on the basis of God's character and what he's shown himself to be all the way then through verse 11 that looks forward to this hope. We'll probably come back a little bit to uh, the content of this hope uh, in verses 10 through 13 in a later segment. But right now, let's just take a quick break and come back and hear a word from a uh, church father on some of these words. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. Um, I'm here with my guest, uh, St. Ambrose of Milan. St. Ambrose was a bishop in the 4th century and slightly into the 5th, but mainly active in the 4th century in the 300s. I have some readings. I actually uh, have this devotional book that I absolutely love from Patrick Henry Reardon, Christ in the Psalms. I grew up uh, always kind of seeing Jesus all over the Psalms. And then when I started my uh, studies in my uh, late teens and, and most of my 20s, I was learning how to read the Psalms kind of on their own terms without a constant messianic reference, which was a fine thing to do. It was very helpful. I kind of learned how to you know, do good word studies and all that jazz. Actually, this book really helped me, I don't know, about 10, 15 years ago on how to still see Christ in the Psalms in a way that still respects sort of that exegesis of the original This book doesn't sort of reject that the Psalms would have had their own surface meaning at the time they were written, while at the same time constantly looking forward to how these Psalms take on a depth dimension when fulfilled in Christ. So Father Patrick Henry Reardon, in his book, Christ in the Psalms, here's here's his page. It's It's just a page or so on Psalm 85. It's marked 84 because he's Greek Orthodox priest, and so he's following the Orthodox uh, Greek Bible numbering. So this is Psalm 85 or 84 in the Septuagint. And he has some extensive quotations and commentary from St. Ambrose. So Ambrose is going to be our, our guest today, as we already mentioned. So here goes. Unto us a child is born, the lyric prophet wrote. Unto us a son is given. That's Isaiah 9, 6. And he wrote these things with respect to the incarnation of the divine son becoming a human child. Both aspects of this Christian mystery, which Isaiah perceived so lucidly, note John 12, 41, that mentions Isaiah seeing him beforehand. Both aspects of this Christian mystery were likewise seen by the wise men who came with adoration to welcome this newcomer to the scene, the divine son and the human child. Unto us a child is born, unto us 
a son is given. St. Ambrose of Milan comments on these wise men. Quote, when they looked upon the little one in the stable, they said, unto us a child is born. And when they beheld his star, they exclaimed, unto us a son is given. On the one hand, a gift from the earth. On the other, a gift from heaven. For both are one person, perfect in both respects, with no change in his divinity and no diminution of his humanity. Only one person did these men, wise men, adore. And to one and the same did they present their gifts, showing that he who was beheld in the stall was the very Lord of the stars. Close quote. That's from Ambrose uh, on the Faith, uh, book three. Now, Psalm 85 is a further canticle honoring both facets of the incarnation. For the latter is that history-defining encounter of two worlds, wherein, quote, the Lord will grant his mercy and our earth shall give its fruit. That's quoting verse 12. Truth has arisen from the earth, we pray in this psalm, speaking of the child born to us. And righteousness has stooped down from heaven, we go on, telling of the son that is given. That's quoting verse 11. So you notice 11 and 12, both an up and a down, downward and upward vector. This union is the sacrament of God becoming human, in which mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have shared a kiss. Thus, still following St. Ambrose, when mankind cried out in Psalm 84, quote, O Lord, show us your mercy and grant us your salvation, it was a prayer for the incarnation in which he, who is God's son, is born as Mary's child and given to us, close quote. So Ambrose here seeing Psalm 85 as a prayer, perhaps unwittingly, but nevertheless a prayer in the spirit begging for the incarnation to take place, asking beforehand for both God's son and Mary's child. So such ultimately is the meaning of the lines with which we begin this same psalm. Quote, Kindly you have been to your land, O Lord, bring back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven your people their iniquities, you have covered all their sins, an end have you given to your anger, you abandoned the fury of your wrath. All these blessings of reconciliation between the two realms of heaven and earth were accomplished when the Father sent his only begotten Son, quote now from Ephesians 1, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, all in him. So in this mystery of God's reconciliation, then, is fulfilled the prophecy of our psalm. Quote, for his salvation is near to all those who fear him, so that glory may inhabit all our earth. That's from verse 9. This glory inhabiting our earth is what was first seen when the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, 
the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. That's John 1, verses 14 and 18. And uh, Father Reardon points out that the, uh, the verb for inhabit in the Greek version of this psalm, verse 9, is a variant of the same verb used in John 1.14 to speak of the word dwelling among us. So that's a, that's a curious little observation. And I'll add one of my own, and that's that this language of grace and truth, full of grace and truth, grace and truth are possibly in John 1.14 being used as equivalents for the chesed and emet, the mercy and truth of verse 10, or steadfast love and faithfulness, which is how those are translated in the NRSV. And uh, NIV translates it love and faithfulness, right? So chesed's that tricky word, mercy, love, steadfastness, all kinds of things like that. And then truth or truthfulness or trustworthiness or faithfulness are all variants of emet. So that grace and truth language from John 1.14 has possible roots in that pairing, which are often paired together in the Psalms and throughout the, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. Chesed and emet, charis uh, and aletheia, grace and truth, love and faithfulness. All right, a couple more paragraphs. So the father sent his son in response to the most profound aspirations of men's hearts because Isaiah spoke for all mankind when he pleaded, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, chapter 64, driven from God's presence in paradise and retained in bondage to unclean spirits by reason of transgression. The human race with Adam and Eve cried out in our psalm, convert us or restore us, O God of our salvation and turn your fury from us. Will you be angry with us forever? Or from generation to generation, prolong your wrath. O God, you will convert us and restore us to life, and your people shall rejoice in you. Christ, then, is our peace, Ephesians 2.14, and likewise is our righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 1 Corinthians 1.30. It is of these things that our psalm says, righteousness shall go before him, and he will set his footsteps in the way. This is the Christ who came and preached peace to you who were both afar off and to those who were near, Ephesians 2, 17. This is the Christ being both forgotten, begotten of the Father before all ages and created from the Virgin in these final times. Quoting again from Ambrose. So we pray with confidence then in the words of our psalm, I shall hear what the Lord God speaks within me. For peace will he speak to his people and to his saints and to those who turn their hearts to him. So there ends our reading from St. Ambrose, offering some interpretation, locating this psalm in the grand story and great economy of God as we see the whole mystery of God's dealings with us contained in the movements of this psalm. So let's take a break and explore 
some sermon starters when we get back from the break. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. Uh, We're looking at Psalm 85 today with our guest, St. Ambrose. We uh, learned a little from him, uh, especially in our second segment there. Uh, Let me read the psalm just one more time. This is from Robert Alter's translation. If any of you regular listeners were like, oh, we haven't heard Alter yet, and some of you were maybe happy about that, getting sick of his particular peculiar way, but others who are digging on him, uh, you'll be happy to know that I won't leave you hanging. So I'll read from Alter's uh, psalm and then just say a few brief comments of application as we consider how we may bear this word on behalf of others in teaching and preaching and praying and leading. So here goes. For the lead player, for the Korahites, a psalm. You favored, O Lord, your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people's crime. You covered all their offense. You laid aside all your wrath. You turned back from your blazing fury. Turn back, pray, God of our rescue, and undo your anger against us. Will you forever be incensed with us? Will you draw out your fury through all generations? Why, you will again give us life, and your people will rejoice in you. Show us, O Lord, your kindness and your rescue grant to us. Let me hear what the Lord God would speak when he speaks peace to his people and to his faithful, that they turn not back to folly Yes, his rescue is near for those who fear him, that his glory dwell in our land. Kindness and truth have met, justice and peace have kissed. Truth from the earth will spring up as justice from the heavens looks down. The Lord indeed will grant bounty and our land will grant its yield. Justice before him goes, and he set his footsteps on the way. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Alleluia. So how might we preach and teach and bear this word for others, this Psalm 85? Well, I wanted to just comment something I I allude to from time to time, but I'm not sure if I've ever taken the time to walk through what's referred to as the fourfold sense of Scripture, the fourfold sense of Scripture. If this is familiar to you, then, you know, perhaps you'll put it in double time going through. But then again, maybe I have a a peculiar take and you might want to hear it out. But if this is new to you, then I hope you'll find this to be useful Fourfold sense of scripture is this kind of this ancient way of collecting up the different ways that we read the scriptures. The first is the literal sense. Uh, we spent most of our first segment talking about the literal sense, which is just comes from the letters. What do the letters say, right? What, what are just the meaning of the words on the page, right? And of course, the literal sense has been expanded greatly in the modern world by greater study of original manuscripts and a deeper understanding of the original context in which texts like this were written and compiled and first sung and used. 
And although in the cases of the Psalms, we might have a little less detail on the original setting, uh, we can definitely see in here a communal lament asking God to restore. It may have been used originally when maybe there was a failure in battle or perhaps uh, a great sin or failing by a group of the people or by the king. Although one could imagine, even if it wasn't the original use, surely eventually this had deep resonances with the moment of exile and return. So again, the psalm is possibly uh, composed before the exile, but surely during and after exile, this psalm would have become very beloved, this sense of, okay, Lord, you've forgiven us in the past, our people, but how long, how long are we going to have to be here? How long are we going to have to wait for you to restore us? Even the language of restoring and the repeated references to the land throughout. Okay. So all of that kind of draws us into that literal sense. And, it, and any sermon or teaching or preaching that completely ignores the literal sense kind of can become unhinged from the meaning of the text as it was first delivered. So I think we need to always pay attention to that literal sense. Sometimes that means looking for analogies in our own time for parallel circumstances. But uh, let me mention some of the other spiritual senses. So that's that literal sense. But then the spiritual senses have kind of three basic modes. They're referred to as the allegorical, the tropological, and the anagogical. You could alternatively name these as the covenantal, the moral, and the mystical, right? The covenantal, the moral, and the mystical. That covenantal sense, that allegorical sense is when we see how a text in its deeper meaning is fulfilled and expanded as what it waits for or prophesies or perceives even darkly in the coming of Christ. So the covenantal sense, the allegorical sense is always centered around the fulfillment of the old covenant in the new covenant, right? Hence the alternative naming covenantal sense. And you can see how our extended passage from St. Ambrose really centered on that allegorical sense. Again, people hear allegory and they think a kind of detailed allegory where each thing in a text corresponds to some other thing, right? Like it's some little riddle or puzzle. You don't have to do that kind of allegorizing in the negative sense of the word to perceive the allegorical sense, the covenantal sense, the way that even the Old Testament scriptures are already speaking of Christ beforehand, even if not always in the consciousness and mind of the uh, the composer um, for the true author of the scriptures is the divine Holy Spirit anticipating what is to come. Uh, again, not every sermon on the Old Testament has to make those turns to the larger economy of salvation. Uh, not every single psalm uh, has to be uh, spoken of through the mouth of Christ or as a prayer for the coming of Christ. I'm not someone who's rigid in, in requiring that every time, though I would be also not one who is would rigidly say you can never do that. You always have to just stick to the literal sense. I think that spiritual sense of the fulfillment of the covenant is uh, appropriate from time to time. Again, not every sermon has to do that. If the, if the rest of a, a service of worship uh, does not speak of Jesus, and it's only the sermon that has to do that, then we've got a larger problem on our hands. So sermons don't always have to go there, but I think it's fair uh, to go there. But we might also, or instead, 
look at that moral sense, that third sense of scripture, or the second of the spiritual senses, the tropological sense, which is just looking for tropes about human nature that we can learn about how to live. You can get directly there from the literal sense if you wish, because here it is, we see someone, you know, in trouble, needing restoration, perhaps in exile in the ancient world. And yet in now we can ask ourselves, what kind of exile are we facing now? What kind of anger of God do we sense ourselves to be under, perhaps through no fault of our own, or perhaps precisely because of our own sins and begging God to restore us, begging God to bring us into a place of justice and peace. And so there's a lot of rich practical moral meaning here that can be drawn on. And I, I, at least in the circles I run in, a lot of sermons tend to camp out in that kind of space. So you just kind of look for resonances of that original setting with our own setting today. And surely all of us have experienced at least some form of exile, some desire asking God to bring heaven and earth together to, as it were, that his will on earth would be done as it is in heaven, that the righteousness from above would meet a justice here on earth. And lastly, but not uh, least for sure, is the anagogical sense. This is often the trickiest uh, because it is the most speculative and the least immediately linked to the literal sense. But that's that anagogical sense or that mystical sense that, that's looking off into the distant future and looking deep into the interior of one's own soul. The mystical sense, the anagogical sense is looking forward to the complete fulfillment, the total fulfillment of all the words of God in the union of humanity with God, the return of all things into the bosom of the Father, the union of the soul with God in heaven, you could put it, or the new Jerusalem, you could put it, or deification, the, the final culmination of all things, eschatology. There's all kinds of words we might use for this, uh, labels that we might put on it. But however you might label it, the point is, is that even as a scripture has been fulfilled in the covenant culminating in Christ Jesus, even as a scripture is being fulfilled in our present through our own faithfulness, our own fulfillment by living it out in practice, there always remains something more, a deeper hope, a broader hope, a final hope of a union with God and humanity God has become human in Christ. We humans now follow that God-man Jesus in the present, and yet humans return fully to God in the end of all things. And the prayers here, how long, how long? One version of that question in this deepest mystical sense remains unanswered until the end of time. How long will we continue to suffer? Well, not every tear is wiped away until all things are restored in the resurrection of all flesh? When will justice and peace truly kiss? When will kindness and truth truly meet up? When will the truth from the earth spring up and meet the justice coming down from the heaven? When will the glory be revealed from on high? 
The fullness of this fulfillment awaits the end of time. And again, does every sermon have to make a reference to eternity future? Does every sermon need to appeal to this deepest and furthest out a hope? No, of course not. Not every sermon has to be a, to use the terms from my own youth, a salvation sermon or a gospel sermon. I don't think those terms are very helpful. Actually, salvation and gospel includes all these aspects of what's already been done in Christ, what's happening now, and what's still to come. So not every sermon has to make this turn at the end uh, to that final future. But it is a sad and tragic thing when our preaching as Christians loses all sense of eternity. Of course, a tragedy in being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but there's also a tragedy in being so attuned to bringing heaven to earth that we lose sight of the hope of earth and heaven meeting of God's own union of all things and not just the the signs of that final justice along the way, which are always limited and broken and imperfect, though true and real, not the full perfection and completeness of our hope. So the question I want to invite all of us to ask for ourselves, but then also on behalf of others, is where do we want to direct our hopes today? Do we want to recall how, of course, always in any sermon, always returning and anchoring in the literal sense, but then as we extend that and, and think of how that applies to us in our time, do we wish to look back and remember how this hope was fulfilled in Christ and just celebrate and praise the way God has already fulfilled this and is not just sitting there with arms folded waiting for us to fulfill it, for he has already fulfilled this word? Maybe for yourself today or maybe for others who are under your care, that's what's needed to remember the hope fulfilled, the hope of Psalm 84 excuse me, Psalm 85, as it has already been fulfilled in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or perhaps for yourself or on behalf of others, you're directed to our present fulfillment of this word, a hope that does not get delayed and deferred, but gets to taste its fulfillment even now. What justice do you seek? What form of peace do you long for? And how can we both beg God for it and cooperate with God to make this world a more just and peaceful place? Perhaps that's where your energies are directed today and pray accordingly. And if you were to preach or teach to others, center in on that. You don't have to cover all these bases. Sometimes the most distracting sermons and teachings are ones that try to cover all the bases. I've walked through all three spiritual senses, all fourfold sense of scripture today, but that's offering a framework for your own reflection. I think the best sermons tend to, to focus their energies into one of these areas more than the others. So finally, is this a kind of week, a day, an hour when our energies are being drawn into that final eternal fulfillment? And if so, don't be ashamed to to draw your attention there. Don't be ashamed to draw others' attention there. Uh, perhaps it's been a while since you've spoken of that distant future fulfillment. Uh, search again, asking the Spirit for language to speak toward that fulfillment, not yet fully 
able to be brought to speech, for it does not yet exist for anyone but Christ himself. And even Christ himself is waiting at the right hand of the Father for the final submission of all things under his feet. So even his own reign is waiting for a fulfillment, a final fulfillment. So I'll just give you a silent moment right now, and you may want to pause the recording and just reflect, or you may want to come back to this later, but we'll just give you one quick silent moment right now to reflect. Where is your energy directed? Fulfillment in Christ in the past, fulfillment through Christ in the present, or fulfillment with Christ in the end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks so much for spending some time together today studying Psalm 85. I hope that it's been uh, enjoyable for you today, and that you're feeling equipped for those uh, who are under your care, whether that be a friend's family or an entire congregation of persons. Thanks uh, to Tom for donating the theme music. Uh, Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work, especially Todd. I can't imagine doing this show without you. And thanks to all the listeners of the show, but especially our patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, the saint of the show, uh, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text to see ways you can support the show there. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.